Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Millennial Learns the Podcast. I am your host, Abby Rancor, and thank you so much for tuning in and listening this week. I appreciate all of your listens. I appreciate all of your feedback. So if you have any, make sure to DM me on Instagram. I actually changed my Instagram to just Abby Rancor with no spaces. And I just have the podcast linked. I think people like to see more of like the person behind the podcast as opposed to just the podcast uh, topics. So it gives me more flexibility with posting on Instagram. I should be a lot more active on there now. Um, So I have a few life updates that I want to talk about before we get into this episode. The episode is pretty dark. It's about Jonestown and the Jonestown massacre, which I didn't know a ton about before I started researching, but it's interesting and everything, but it is a little dark. So fair warning there, but a couple life updates. So if you've been listening, you know that I've been moving. Uh, The whole family has had a lot of moves. And the other thing that's been happening is car buying or car deals that have that we've all kind of been working. So my my husband had a lease on a car that was pretty expensive and probably not going to last a super long time because it was a Jeep. And I think Jeeps have a lot of maintenance um, issues or at least they're known to. Um, and so he decided that he wanted to turn in his car, uh, break the lease on it, turn it in and buy a like smaller and kind of just downsize to maybe like a crossover um, type of car because he had a Jeep Gladiator, which is the truck, which those look super goofy if you've never seen them before. It looks like just a four-door Jeep with like a truck bed attached. They really grew on us. I ended up really, really liking the look, but they are super kind of goofy looking if you haven't seen them. But um, now we, we basically went to two different dealers, got very close to these deals on cars, which took multiple days and usually my family buys cars very quickly like within a day if we decide that we need to buy a car we're like we're buying a car we're getting the deal done now so we were like really close to this deal with one guy he would not take off these accessories we wanted and it was just kind of annoying i didn't really like him so we walked and then we went to a different dealer they gave us like a way better trade-in value everything was good we had decided on the car that we wanted said that we were going to, you know, signed all the papers, decided on the price, all of that. And the day before they called and said that we can actually not do a Jeep trade-in and that the payoff price or something would be way higher for the dealership. And so that one fell through too. (laughs) So we went and just sold a car um, through Jeep and, you know, they like were able to match our price and all was fine. Well, selling a car just straight up is supposed to only take one hour. Okay. But, and they said it was going to take an hour. It ended up taking us like five hours because things were so backed up at corporate because the used car market, I guess, is so hot right now. Like everyone is selling their car. So they had so many sales that it was so backed up that we ended up taking like five hours to actually sell this car but good news is we sold it it was all fine we are currently functioning with one car and i know some people do this a lot like uh, my husband's parents have one car and so and it works for them they can coordinate stuff we both are working from home at least part-time and so i think we'll make it work but we were like hmm i wonder if we can just function until we have our new house 
with one car like that might be kind of a nice experiment because then we're just paying nothing for our car and we can save a bunch of money so we might be back in a car dealership next week if we find the right one or we might be waiting like eight months so we'll see how this coordination goes i will keep you posted i also want to do a podcast episode on cars and like leases and turn-ins because i feel like we've been learning a lot through this whole car buying process the whole negotiation process the like they really want you on payments we were going to go pay like in cash you know write a check for that for the car and it is amazing how many times they brought up payments because i think you know they get extra money obviously if they finance the car as well and they charge you interest and all of that stuff so it's just been very very interesting to be buying all these cars and it was such a tiring weekend because partly because of these car deals that were going on um the other thing if you have followed my instagram uh, for like the last week is I took quite a tumble on a road bike and I wanted to talk about it because you will not catch me riding a bike anytime soon after this. Um, and so, okay, here's, here's the story. So my friend, one of my friends is very adventurous. She skydives. She surfs. She, well, I think she surfs. She skydives, scuba dives. She's a pilot. She does triathlons. And this is where the biking comes in. She likes to do these things called the sprint triathlons. And I think she's done longer ones, but, um, there's these set of boulder triathlons. That's like right up by where I went to school, where you swim, bike, and run around the boulder reservoir it's really nice and they're called sprint triathlons because basically what you're running is like instead of a full marathon like an Ironman you're running a 5k and then you're swimming a much shorter distance than you would let's say in an Ironman and you're biking less so I think the bike was like 17 miles something like that well Amber oh yeah I didn't mention my friend's name is Amber so hopefully that's okay for me to mention but my friend Amber basically has been doing these since college and I have been wanting to do one since then but something's always come up something's like you know i'm not confident on a bike which plays heavily into this story and um i've just never gotten around to doing one and i really wanted to do one this year and i told her that i would and i finally said like okay you know what i'm committing to doing one my original plan was to do it in august so i had time to prepare because it was like end of august we're you know and so it gave me like a little bit of time to train at least. Well, I realized I was gonna be out of town the day that the August one is happening. So I was like, well, maybe I can do the July one. I decided this last weekend, so it would have given me like three weeks to train, which isn't a ton, but like if you're only running a 5K, like I feel like I could get through it, you know? It's not gonna be easy, but if it's like two hours of exercise, I could probably at least just power through it. So that was my mindset. And we said, okay, well, if I'm gonna be doing this, we should probably practice the bike ride because I have not ridden a bike in years, like many years. So we make this whole plan where this past Saturday, we decide I'll drive up to Boulder. We will go to this cycle shop. I'll get a bike and rent it, like a road bike. Cause I've ridden like mountain bikes and regular just kind of like 
I would call it a street bike, but the, what people race on is called a road bike. Like, you know, just a standard, like a Duffy bike basically is what I've ridden before and it's been fine. But I've never been like so confident as an adult on a bike. So I, I rent this road bike with, you know, the one with the tiny little thin wheels and I'm feeling good. Well, I'm not really feeling good. I should take that back. When we were at the bike shop, he asked me to get on the bike and like hold on to the counter so he can measure the seat height. And even then I was kind of wobbly and I was like, oh geez, like that's kind of embarrassing. But you know what? I can ride a bike, so let's just get out there. We get out uh, into this like parking lot. We unload our bikes. We park my car like a mile outside of the trail start because we have to go into the reservoir to get to the trailhead. So we take my friend's car into the reservoir. We put my car like a mile back and we realize that I left my water bottle um, by my car. So, but it's not a big deal. We have like three other ones that are like, okay, whatever. Let's just start the ride. I adjust my seat height a little bit more. I put it down. So I'm feeling more confident on the bike and we start riding and I'm feeling pretty good. So we start going, we ride like we're riding on the street, which already makes me nervous. I'm like hyper aware and hypersensitive about riding like by cars because I've just seen so many bikers and like news stories of bikers that have died. And so I was already kind of nervous, but we're going down mostly like straightaways and I'm feeling pretty good. Other than my butt on the seat is really hurting, but I was like, whatever that I can push through. So we're like maybe a mile in, I would think I'm not that good of a judge of distance. But basically my car, there's a split off and my car is on the left split off. And I think, cause Amber had me set the pace since I'm new at it. She didn't want to like push me past my limit. So I'm setting the pace. I heard her say like, oh, your water, bo water bottle is on the left. I'm thinking like, oh, cool. Good to know. Like I, I knew my water bottle was on the left, but I thought that that was like, she was just pointing it out to me. We didn't need to grab it. We would just grab it on the way back and that the actual trail was to the right. So I started veering off to the right. I see her going to the left because turns out that's the way the trail went. She wasn't just telling me that my water bottle was there. She was saying like, we should go left. And so I was like, okay. Um, so I'm veering off, she's veering off. And I'm like, I go down the, the road a little bit thinking that there might be like a way to cross over to the other road where she is. I soon realized there's not. So I need to turn around and go back and meet her. It, we're like tw 20 feet apart at this point. Like it's a very narrow fork, but I can't see her cause there's like a few bushes and a few trees and there ends up being this school building. I think it's a school building or a church or something. So I even had the thought to stop the bike, turn it around, like pick it up, physically pick it up, turn it around and then start riding again to go back because I've always not been good at turns on a bike. But I was like, you know what? This road seems kind of wide and let's just try making a sharp turn here. Like what could go wrong? Okay. So I start making the turn. I'm like halfway through the turn. I'm realizing like this is not turning fast enough. And I am like, okay, I'm trying to turn, 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 turn. It's not turning fast enough. We're on a road. So there's like a curb on either side of the road. I basically realize that I'm about to run into this curb. And so I tried to slam my brake, which is different than any other brake that I have, you know, used like any other bike that I've ridden before. 
I tried to slam the brake, but it's the back brake, which apparently is like a softer brake. I'm not sure if my hand missed or I just didn't squeeze it hard enough or I should have squeezed the front brake. But either way, I did not stop in time. My bike hit the curb and I fell off the bike, which wouldn't have really been that big of a deal, except I fell into one very large bush that was basically like the kind of bush that has like, it's like a pine tree. It has like very, very sharp and very, very solid sticks. It's not like one of those bushes you can just fall into and like the whole thing collapses. This is like, I collapsed. Like I bounced off the bush because it had such like strong uh, roots, I guess, or branches. Anyway, I fall like straight kind of over to the right side, hit the curb, fall over to the right, go straight into the bush and kind of get bounced off the bush. And I'm sitting on the curb, like I'm kind of laying on the curb after this fall. And I was like, oh my God. My first thought was like, oh my God, that was so embarrassing. Like nothing really hurt that bad. Just like a few little scratches and stuff. I stand up. I was like, oh, that is so embarrassing. I immediately try to like pick up the bike and walk over to Amber and just be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I fell. Well, as soon as I stand up and like get the bike, I just look down and my whole, like there's just blood just like dripping so fast. Like so much blood is dripping from, I can't tell where because nothing on my face hurts, but I know it's not the rest of my body because it's drip. I can tell it's dripping off my face. So I'm like, Amber, and I start walking over. She's kind of running towards me. She just see, I, we talked about it later. We're laughing. She just like left me out of her sight for literally two seconds. And when she looked back over, I was crawling out of a bush. <laughs> but but um, yeah, she, I was just dripping blood. And she came over and she, she originally thought I had like broken my nose or something and that was bleeding. But then she saw that I had this cut on my face. Like it's, it's like to the right of my chin, like kind of in the cleft between your cheek and your chin. And she was like, oh gosh, that's kind of deep. Um, so luckily I crashed right next to my car, but I had left the keys in Amber's car, which was a mile back. So the other very lucky thing, well, God's favor, is that a, another biker had just parked right next to our car and which there was that he was the only one it was just like my car and his car and he happened to start his his bike ride at that exact time he parked there and he was getting ready so i walk over with like two hands just full of blood and i'm like hi um do you have a first aid kit and amber's like i'm gonna go back to the car and get your you know your keys and all this stuff because it's really a quick bike ride so she helps me get all settled. Uh, it's kind of stops bleeding, but we, this guy is helping me. He's like, he gives me like this soapy rag. I'm wiping off my face. I just have blood everywhere. Like my whole shirt is bloody. My hands are bloody. Everything's bloody, but I wipe off some of my face and then he helps put this gigantic bandaid on my face. So that was all fine. He left for his ride. I'm just covered in blood on the side of the road and I called my parents and I was like, oh, yep, I, I immediately fell into a bush, you know, that sucks. But I thought for a while that it would be fine to just like go to Walgreens and maybe super glue it together or like put the butterfly stitch sort of thing. Um, that did not turn out to be that fine. Like everyone who saw it ended up going, oh man, that's, that looks deep. Like the first aid guy, my friend did, and then eventually the people at Urgent Care did. So, um, 
yeah, we ended up like I almost passed out because of the thought of the cut on my face. Like I would, you know, I was kind of a mess. The other like thing that I don't, I can't explain how it happened. When I looked down, there was not only a bunch of blood on my shirt, but there was bird poop too. And I was like, really, how did this happen? How did I not only cut my face open, but also get pooped on at the same time? Like this cannot be, this is just, it was not my day. But anyway, we, we eventually decided to go to urgent care. They rinsed it out. It was all fine. You know, things happen. But I was, I was recounting to my friend, like, this is really my first injury, which is good, but also like a little sad because I realized it was kind of because I don't do that many adventurous things. Um, but yeah, the bike riding is going to be a no from me. <laughs> I am no longer going to compete in the triathlon. I was going to do the duathlon, but my knee got cut up pretty bad. And so it's, I don't think I can swim and train in time to do that. So I might just pass and go cheer Amber on and she can, <laughs> she can do the triathlon without me. But I'm just so thankful that that did not happen in a race with like a bunch of other people. There's no way I should have signed up for this. I have to go try to change my registration now because it was just so bad. And then I had to return the bike to the bike shop and uh, they were flabbergasted that I had just spent like two or three hours, probably like two hours in the urgent care um, with face stitches. Like I'm sure they've seen a lot, but it was kind of embarrassing to go back in the bike shop. But anyway, I'm all fine. Five stitches later on my face, it was all good. I have quite the story to tell now. So that is my story. That was my weekend. Um, and then yesterday we just spent the day like relaxing and stuff and my wounds are feeling much, much better today. So um, they say, interestingly enough, they say that face stitches only have to be in for a week because part of the reason why your face bleeds so much is because it's so vascular but that's also part of the reason why it heals so quickly so i should hopefully not have too noticeable of a scar and i should be able to take these out in a week with no issue so that's good and you know it was just quite quite the day i was like excited to get back on my fitness game and take this great bike ride and all this stuff and try something new and turns out it only lasted 10 minutes I fell we spent two hours in an urgent care and then we went and ate anyway so um, but the people at the urgent care were great and I am all all good now but I will not be riding a bike anytime soon so let's get into the episode this one is not gonna be such a funny story as me crashing into a bush it is kind of depressing so let's get into Jonestown Okay, so I want to go over a little bit about what I knew before about Jonestown before I researched this because this was kind of a random thing. I've had this on my podcast research list for actually a really long time because I knew it was like about, you know, quote, drinking the Kool-Aid. Like when people say, oh, don't drink the Kool-Aid. I knew vaguely that that was a reference to Jonestown and that people had drank like Kool-Aid mixed with poison um, and died. And I also kind of knew that they were a cult, but like really nothing about the cult. So I knew no surrounding details other than a bunch of people drank Kool-Aid one time and died. I thought it was in America. turns out it was not. So let's recap what was happened. I'm going to start with the, um, 
with the leader of this cult and his like childhood and then where he created the cult basically so in 1931 on may 13th in indiana jim jones was born he turns out to be the leader of this cult so his dad was an alcoholic and worked as a mystic fortune teller which probably didn't set him up for great success people can overcome that but yeah it sounded like he had a pretty hard childhood he was always this guy described as really really weird he liked to kill animals he would like hold funerals for small animals he stabbed a cat with a knife one time and killed it he was obsessed with hitler obsessed with death like this is nerve-wracking i guess i mean i know that his childhood wasn't good so maybe that propelled him into this but it always seems like really nerve-wracking to actually have kids like I feel like 99% of kids turn out okay, but like this kid was killing cats with knives just for fun and was obsessed with death. Like, I feel like his parents were not, must not have been paying attention. I mean, we know his dad was an alcoholic, so that kind of makes sense that there was no one paying attention to him. Um, but those are very concerning signs as an adult. Like there is a stereotype I feel like of kids who like to kill animals or like torture animals, you know? Uh, being serial killers and this is like definitely very stereotypical so you know I feel like there were many many warning signs that he was not the best guy um, because some people thought later and we'll I'll show you how this all kind of works but basically there was a lot of people who didn't know about his childhood but thought that he just had like a kind of a random and very quick turn to evil when he ended up killing these people but if you trace it back like it's it was a pretty long issue that i think he disguised for a long time so anyway he was obsessed with hitler marx so this, this is like his crew that he really was obsessed with hitler marx stalin all three of those kind of go together but then gandhi so he was very interested in religion and how religion affected people um the other thing was he was a an outcast to society they described him as kind of a loner and an outcast so he always also was he cared about um desegregation and he he always was working towards desegregation in his life he um from a very early age wanted to hang out with people of other races and even in the face of opposition like from his dad um he would he would do that so um, he got married at 18 uh, and got a degree in secondary education. So he was an educated guy. Um, in 1951, uh, he was he started attending meetings of the Communist Party. So he was very infatuated with communism and how to like have this utopia like utopian society. And he thought the way to do that was socialism or communism. Um, he really wanted the U.S. to become communist and thought that because of his fascination with religion, he thought that the best way to turn the country communist was to infiltrate the church, which is kind of interesting because I feel like back then in the 50s, so many people went to church. They were so invested that that's actually probably, you know, a, he was probably onto something like if you can infiltrate the church with these ideas, then you can get a long way i feel like a lot of people are doing that now with like the progressive agenda um and i'm talking about just like i know a lot of christians who are just um kind of standard like democrats and you know i guess difference of opinion 
but there are at least on tiktok and i've mentioned this before there are a lot there's like a rise of ultra progressive um pastors so they'll basically like read in the bible that something is a sin and then they'll say no of course that's not a sin that's he didn't say that and they you know i feel like are very are just political activists that are like well let's get people to vote liberal through church which church should not be that place i mean it also shouldn't be a place that's just like hey let's get people to vote republican here but it should be you know based in the bible and then you your actions flow from what the bible tells you to do not hey these are my ideas let's make the church vote this way and i feel like that's happening now so this he was kind of you know he was kind of on to something he wanted the u.s to become communist and wanted to infiltrate the church to start spreading that so in 1952 he became a student pastor at a church called the somerset Southside methodist church and while he was there, he really saw that all these rich people who went to his church were very attracted to faith healings and these kind of big shows and acts and stuff. And so he um, he realized that they gave more money when those things were part of the service. So he was just kind of gathering like information on how to build a very big church. In 1956, he launched his own church and he went through a few names, but he settled on uh, after, you know, many iterations, they called it the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, which is quite the mouthful, but most people just called it the People's Temple. It was open to all races in a time of segregation, which made it very kind of revolutionary and drew a lot of criticism. So like a lot of people would harass him. They like threw a dead cat in front of his house. They, um, they painted like a, a swastika sign like on the church so he faced a lot of um backlash for desegregation so like one of the good things he did was encourage desegregation but um he started growing in popularity as more people got on board with desegregation they eventually had like many different branches of the church and many different uh I guess locations that were all under the like umbrella of people's temple but different kind of campuses he was then appointed by the uh by the no he was appointed as the director of human rights commission by the democratic mayor charles boswell and he continued to grow in popularity all of that you know the church was booming basically so, like I mentioned, he was a major desegregation activist. Throughout his like church run when he was the pastor there, he worked very closely with communities to desegregate things. So he would like participate in protests in restaurants, hospitals, any public area, um, and call to desegregate. And he was responsible for desegregating quite a few hospital wards, it sounds like, and restaurants and things like that. So, um, he, th he and his wife then adopted three kids. They were partially of Korean descent and he was famous for like calling them the rainbow family because it was very uncommon to have like basically two white parents and two and three non-white, um, kids or at least not fully white kids. Um, 
so he was obsessed with yeah with desegregation religion and like death which is an odd set of interests um he briefly went to brazil when the church was still up and running and he wanted to observe observe the slums the people and explore the religions down in brazil but um he eventually moved that back to indiana but then um then once the temple had gotten like big enough basically they ended up moving it to california and that's where uh there were multiple branches like in different cities so there was some in los angeles some in uh san francisco and a couple other cities in in california so then because it was so basically the church's tenants were things like i mean not only desegregation which is a good thing but it was very communist focused so he thought he didn't like other communists because they outwardly presented themselves as communists and that had a very bad rep in the united states so what he did with the infiltrating of the church thing is be very quiet about his communism other than in the church so the church was essentially communist he would take not even the bible it was just like his own kind of church i guess and he would just talk about this utopia and communism and um socialism he wanted basically the perfect socialist uh economy or like group where everyone would just get along and everyone share their food and all that stuff so he really was a fan of communism but after he started being scrutinized more and more for the desegregation and the communism stuff they ended up moving to guiana and he named the place after himself this little kind of compound after himself and called it jonestown so the church at its peak they said that there were about five thousand members but most of them broke ties when jonestown in guyana was formed i think i'm saying that right so there were about a thousand people that went down there with him um and the rest kind of well there were some people that stayed loyal to him but just didn't move to guyana they stayed in california but the rest of them kind of broke ties and realized this was not worth it and this was not not great um but about a thousand moved down to guiana so after they're in guiana for a while there started to be reports because these were all american citizens living there and so there started to be reports about abuse happening um these like punishments that people would have to endure things like that um mostly coming out of like i think indiana and california and because those were where the churches were located and so a lot of family members of uh a lot of people who had family members who moved with jones um started hearing these reports and saying that like these are u.s citizens that want to be back here but cannot get back because jim jones who's their cult leader takes their money and their passports as soon as they enter so they're under like complete control they can't leave even though they want to so these reports slowly started coming out of um jonestown but it didn't seem to get much traction other than with let's see what this uh name was leo ryan so leo ryan is a congressman and he started hearing from his constituents that um that there were these 
punishments and abuses and all of this happening, you know, to the family members of his constituents in Guyana. And he was a very active, like, congressman. If there were these crazy stories of things, he would go and see it for himself. He had done it multiple times. And so this, okay, so I just looked it up. Leo Ryan is from California. So um, most of these reports were coming out of California. So he decided that he was going to go look and take this like detail with him, his like entourage, and go look at Jonestown and make sure that, you know, and basically see if it was true. See if there were Americans being trapped or forced against their will or if they wanted to be there. Because there were, you know, the reports were mixed. So um let's see so congressman leo came down to see for himself and they threw him a big party they were like welcoming him with open arms and everything looked amazing they had this great dinner everyone was seemed pretty open and welcoming and all of this and he was like huh well i guess the reports aren't true like they love it here and they want to stay i don't think there's any problem but then eventually one of the people staying there in one of the residents of Jonestown slipped someone in his entourage a note that said like, it's true. We need help. We can't get out. Like I need to leave and get back to America. And so basically they were like, oh shoot, it's true. And as soon as that one person handed him the note, word kind of got out where more and more people were like, I need to leave too. I want to leave too. So it spread quietly, but quickly through Jonestown that people wanted to leave. And so Leo Ryan um, and his detail were like, okay, we need to get multiple planes out here quickly, like very quickly, so we can get as many people who want to leave out as we can. So they go back to the air airstrip. They are waiting for these planes. They call another, like an extra one to try to get people out. They're waiting for these planes. Well, word got back to uh, Jim Jones that these people wanted to leave. And they basically sent, like, gunmen to the airstrip. So as Leo Ryan and his crew were racing to the airstrip to get it, a car pulled up with assassins, basically. And they shot and killed uh, the, the congressman and four of his... Uh, like entourage. Now, one of his assistants survived and I read her story and it was crazy. Like she said that there was no way she should have survived. Her arm was all messed up and her leg was basically like blown off and she was just laying on this airstrip dead. And she was like, maybe I should play dead. And then she goes, well, how am I actually not dead yet? Um, and so they killed Leo Ryan and that was like a big news. Obviously it was before I was born, but I imagine Everyone was pretty, pretty shocked by that. So they killed him. And then um, word got back to Jim Jones, the leader of this cult, that they had, or uh, that, you know, the governor had been killed and that it had escalated and all of that. And so he told everyone that, okay, since we, you know, the governor has been killed now this is going to reach going back and reach America and they're going to come attack you and they're going to capture you and they're going to kill you, whatever. This is no way to live. Basically like a thing, like once the real enemy comes and this attack actually happens, life is not going to be worth living as we know it. And so we all need to commit suicide now. 
And so he convinced everyone to drink poison, like cyanide-laced punch, and killed themselves. He ordered um, adults to feed the kids first, like babies and kids, and then work your way up basically to the elderly. Um, and so there's skeptic, like some people are skeptical that everyone did drink the Kool-Aid quote unquote. Um, they do think that they had some people standing guard, like if someone didn't drink it or didn't, uh, you know, yeah, I guess didn't drink it. Um, they would shoot them or inject them with it. Um, but there is some debate about whether they, some people just injected themselves with it instead of drinking it. So I don't know. But the point is, 909, I think, people died in Guyana that day because they all drank the Kool-Aid. Now, as I mentioned, there were some, um, there were about a thousand people down there and 909 died. So that means that there were some survivors, which their stories are crazy. Like one lady was super old and she had accidentally slept through like the entire thing. Like, I think she slept for an, an extended period of time. I think it was like way over 12 hours and she slept through the whole thing. When she woke up, like her whole community was dead. Another guy was asked to run to, um, an embassy and like deliver them this package. And so he was asked to run an errand and then that's why he missed it. So he came back and everyone had died. So there's just like these crazy stories of people who survived, but it's so sad because they literally lost everything. Like most people didn't just move there by themselves. They moved there with, you know, their aunts, uncles, like cousins, sons, daughters, spouses. So it wasn't, most people weren't just single. They were like huge families that moved there because I think people, you know, kind of got sucked into the temp the people's temple as a family and so there were a lot of families and if someone survived their entire family was wiped out so it was like super devastating to the survivors um i mean and and the loss of life was crazy so it was the single deadliest event um or like mass murder suicide basically um until 9-11 which, uh, so that happened November 18th, 1978. And yeah, over 900 cult members died. So that is why we have the saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid, which kind of is, tr I mean, I don't like to be the person that's like overly sensitive with comedy, but, um, it seemed like for the amount of times I've lightheartedly heard like, oh, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, I thought that this had happened a long time ago, uh, because everyone like kind of jokes around about it and I guess it is 40 years ago now but that is such a crazy story like so many people died that is wild um so yeah that is where the saying don't drink the Kool-Aid comes from I also want to talk about the conditions of Jonestown a little bit because I feel like that is pretty much why Leo Ryan got these reports because like a lot of these cult instances that we see Jim Jones was treated like a god. Like, he pretty much convinced a bunch of people that he was, like, a god, that he knew right, that he was wise, um, and that he would not lead them astray. He was, like, the fearless leader in their minds, and he was basically, like, a deity. So he, whatever he said was basically the law, and these people were following after him pretty, pretty, 
not blindly they just got sucked in it was a lot of a manipulation um so he all, preached a lot of things though there's like one good thing that he preached which is desegregation well i guess he he also preached against like drug use which is probably good although he was like very into drugs they said that he was basically addicted to drugs especially in his last days and that is what helped like kind of contributed to these manic episodes that he had which were so terrible so let's go over some of these episodes basically we'll start with the discipline so there were multiple uh aspects of discipline so like i said jim jones was considered basically a deity what he preached was kind of law and so anytime that someone did something wrong there would be a punishment that that he kind of determined and i don't think he was like there on a case-by-case basis but he determined at least the rules so there was something called the learning crew which was were a work detail for minor infractions things like cleaning toilets draining ditches just very monotonous like gross little tasks um for minor infractions then there were things called group punishments which was like during community meetings so they would have big community meetings and he would i think have one person like beat another person like it would be as a community so multiple other members of the community would carry out the punishment on the perpetrator um so one woman was slapped publicly for a few different minor infractions there was a teenager beaten in a community meeting for shoving a woman there was um just a lot of these beatings and by the way the reason that they know this stuff about jonestown is like there were not i i believe there was not a lot of technology there wasn't a lot of communication with the outside world but one woman took meticulous notes of about everything about the people's temple it was like her journal that she poured over for like pages and pages she would make a first draft edit things and then um retype them all and stuff so she is like one of the big windows into why into what the daily life was like for people in jonestown then there was something called the box which was a six by four box underground for sensory deprivation terrible terrible stuff so there was constant fear but then there was just general terror be and like jim jones would say basically if you do something bad we're, we're gonna go tie you to the stake outside of the camp so that the lion can have you stuff like that so it was all fear-based um and that is like the worst part that's like the part that all of these cults have in common i feel like most of it starts out with good intentions we want this like um communist we all share we want this utopian society and all of this stuff it starts out with good intentions they want a desegregation all on like unity and hope and buddhism and all this stuff then it gets greedy like people get greedy people get i mean he seemed evil kind of from the very beginning with his like childhood and his obsession with death so um maybe his colors were just showing more but it turned south very badly the other part of this general terror thing that i think is important to hit on is they used to do suicide practice runs so he would always say that like the that jonestown was under attack he would always have like these fake claims that they were being attacked and all this stuff but then say oh like they warded it off um and it's all fine but they did have a rehearsal run of this thing of this suicide um kind of mission i guess you would call it where he called he called these things called white knights 
And these apparently got more frequent as he was on more drugs and addicted to drugs and going through these manic episodes. But whenever he would call a white knight, that meant like emergency meeting. So it'd be at night, he would sound the alarm or whatever and say, white knight, white knight, and have everyone join together in a meeting. And on one of these white nights, they were always like saying that someone was attacking and it would be resolved in a variety of ways. But one particular white night before the actual suicide night, um, he said the exact same thing as when, um, as when it actually happened. He said basically like they're under attack. They're actually coming this time. Um, they're going to murder you or keep you in a jail cell or treat you so terribly that it's not going to be worth living. And so you should just kill yourselves now, drink this punch and it's going to kill you. So a bunch of people did, but the punch was not laced with anything as was his plan. And so they didn't die. And he said, Oh, well now I know that you're loyal to me. Thanks. And everyone went back home. So that's the kind of manipulation that's happening there is like, oh, you did this to prove your loyalty to me. And so now I know that you care. They had already heard that once. They had already done that once. And so I'm not convinced that they actually knew that they were legitimately drinking poison, like punch the first or the second time because the first, they had already done it and it was not poison. So I, I bet a decent amount of them didn't think that they were actually going to die. They just thought it was like basically a loyal, a loyalty test. So Anyway, that is obviously not a fun story. It's crazy and super tragic that that many people died all at once for something so senseless. Like, it wasn't like this People's Temple really did that much good other than in the very beginning desegregating some stuff. But it turned bad so quickly. It turned so manipulative, so abusive. And these people died just so senselessly. And so I just... I feel, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a typical cult thing. Not everyone dies in a cult all the time, but the the mistreatment, the punishments, the thinking that the cult leader is like essentially God, it all kind of lines up with other cults, cult examples that we've seen. And it's just so important to not be manipulated, I guess, but I don't know how, because it seems like these cult leaders are always so um, charming and enchanting and really have a, a good message. And then it turns like it goes sideways pretty quick. So, um, that is the Jonestown massacre. And I've been curious about this for so long. So I'm glad I finally actually took the time to go research it. And hopefully by learning about some of these cult things, you know, people can be more aware to not fall into that trap. Some people like trivialize, um, this cult or Jonestown as like, they kind of make fun of the people because they're like, who would drink suicide? Like, who would drink punch and kill themselves just because, like, a guy told him to? And I think that's such a simplistic way to look at this because clearly it was years and years and years of manipulation. They were getting a community out of this group. They were getting acceptance. They were getting, like, maybe this was, like, the socially outcast. They were getting, you know, food and shelter and stuff like that. So, um, with enough, it doesn't take that much to manipulate people to doing some crazy stuff. And so I think that's important to, to take note of because some people just like blatantly are like, I would never fall into that. And these people are stupid, but I don't think it's that simple. I think people are manipulative sometimes and have bad intentions. He was obsessed with death. And I'm pretty sure this was the plan kind of the entire time to eventually go and like kill all of his followers. So very sad, but now I know what that is. And hopefully like 
hopefully not a lot of stuff like this happens in the future with cults and things. Um, I usually don't like true crime or anything, but I, cults kind of fascinate me because of how people follow like a leader and what they find in a cult before it goes sideways. It's kind of interesting. So anyway, um, that is all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to my bike ride story. And um, please, like, I'm really hoping the next week is way more relaxed than this week because it's just moving, 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 car buying, you know, biking. <laughs> and um, we've had quite the, the couple weeks. So I am hope, hope everyone's having a good couple weeks. And uh, make sure to go follow me on Instagram, subscribe to this podcast so you can hear all of my um, new episodes that come out. The Instagram is at Abby Rancor, and I would appreciate a DM or a review on Apple Podcasts to tell me how you like the episode. A five star really helps the algorithm to show us to more people. So thank you so much for listening. I will see you on Thursday for our Bible episode. Bye everyone.